Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that will never copy your sweater. I'm your host, Amanda. Today is part one of three episodes featuring my friend Danny of Picnic. In her career as a sweater designer, otherwise known as knitwear, she worked for several large fast fashion retailers. Now she has her own brand, Picnic, where she makes cool hats out of awesome vintage towels, but she also sells masks, vintage clothes, and she has some other new stuff coming soon. I'll share a link to her Instagram in the show notes. Please check it out. So yeah, this is part one of three because we had so much to talk about. Today, we'll be focusing on how the fast fashion industry knocks itself off. Yeah, of course, we all know they knock off designers both large and indie all the time, but they also seem to knock themselves off quite a bit too. It's super weird and it's like kind of dumb <laughs> because how do you look different from Forever 21 if you're copying their stuff, right? So why not just go shop at Forever 21 and not your store or vice versa? I mean, it's it's so weird. <laughs> Something I mentioned in our conversation is Tuesday Basson's 2016 battle with Zara. I thought it might be good for me to elaborate on that just a little bit. I mean, for some of you, this will be a memory refresher, but for others, this might be the first time you're hearing about this. So Tuesday Bassin is an independent artist and designer. She owns Tuesday of California, where you can buy her own slow fashion clothing and a well-curated assortment of gifts from other indie brands. It's great, and I want everything she sells, so check it out. In early 2016, her fans started reaching out to her asking if she had done a collaboration with Zara because Zara was selling almost identical copies of her most popular pin designs, but in patch form. Well, she was not involved in a collab with Zara, nor had she licensed her designs to them. So Basson hired a lawyer and issued a cease and desist letter to Inditex. Inditex is the parent company of Zara, and it also owns Bershka and Pull and Bear, among other brands, but those are the ones you might have heard of. Now, I want to pause for a moment, because before I knew how really unfair the world was slash is, I would hear stories like this and I would think like, whoa, Tuesday Bazin is about to make millions off of Zara, but... That's just not how it works. Most indie designers would not have the financial ability to pay a lawyer a couple thousand dollars to issue a cease and desist, much less fund any additional legal action. And after a certain point, the legal bills might outweigh any damages the designer might win in the distant future. I mean, lawyers are expensive, so these artists would just have to roll over and like move on. Unless maybe they were able to mobilize the power of social media to force some kind of reckoning. But we've seen that most retailers don't really care if a bunch of people on Instagram are angry at them. I mean, there are still brands who haven't hashtag paid up for the orders they canceled on factories this spring. They just don't care unless they're actually losing sales and they can prove that. Like it's like there's an actual cause that they can correlate it to. Otherwise, they're going to keep it business as usual, even if that means stealing ideas from artists and other designers. So fortunately, Tuesday Bassin was able to hire a lawyer because after she sent the cease and desist letter, she found even more of her designs had been copied by Zara and Bershka. And once again, these were exact copies. I've seen the photos. It's ridiculous. 
Inditex's response to her letter is pretty infamous in terms of its shittiness, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's very, very legalese, but then I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> so I'm not reading the whole letter, just one paragraph that is the extra shitty part of it. And they say, we reject your claims here for reasons similar to those already stated above. The lack of distinctiveness of your client's purported designs makes it very hard to see how a significant part of the population anywhere in the world would associate the signs with Tuesday Bassin. This is our firm view and being aware of the third-party notifications that you have brought to our attention. In this last regard, please note that such notifications amount to a handful of complaints only when it is borne in mind that millions of users worldwide visit the respective websites monthly. And then they said, Zara, 98 million average monthly visits last year. Bershka, 15 million average monthly visits last year. The figures clearly put these notifications into sharp perspective. So what did that mean? Basically, they're saying, hey, listen, we know you said that people reached out to you about us allegedly copying you and you have forwarded those messages to us in your cease and desist. But does that really mean anything when you are like so much smaller than us? You're not famous enough to be copied by someone as big as us. It's a total dick move, right? Bassin let loose with Zara's letter on Instagram, and it turned into like a social media tidal wave. More and more artists realized that their hip work had been copied by Zara too. I want to say it was like 20 artists, and it included big names that you might recognize, or at least big to us, like Big Bud Press, Robin Eisenberg, Adam J. Kurtz, Sarah Lyons, and these are things. And once again, these were like exact copies. In Inditex's letter, when they say that like, Tuesday Bassin's work wasn't distinctive enough to be copied. I mean, that's just a bold lie. It became pretty apparent that someone at Zara had just been searching hashtag enamel pins on Instagram and just stole the art. And Zara's later rebuttal after this picked up steam on social media was like, well, we have a really big company. We have many, many, many designers. How could we even know who stole the design? But we'll, we'll try to figure it out. Like that's where they kind of left it. As far as I know, Bastin eventually settled with Zara. There's a great episode of Articles of Interest about her battle, and I'll share it in the show notes. She's actually interviewed for it. She was also around the same time copied by Hot Topic. I mean, the, it's just so widespread. I don't know what happened to the other artists because, once again, smaller artists and designers don't tend to have the spare cash to hire a lawyer to fight on their behalf. So... It's really up to us as consumers to advocate for these artists by speaking out to retailers that steal their ideas and give our money to the actual artists while withholding money from the brands that steal. It's the only way we can protect small artists and designers and also support them and let them grow because their legal power is so minimal. And we'll get more into the legality of copying in our conversation today, but I gotta say, the law's not really on the side of designers in the United States. So this kind of copying happens all the time, especially to these indie artists, because the repercussions are so minimal for the large corporations. PacSun, Forever 21, random Amazon sellers, I mean, tons of other retailers have been caught in the act, and they're kind of like, eh, whatever. They hope that we'll just forget about it and move on. Today, we're going to talk about how these things happen with big retailers that really ought to know better. So let's get into our conversation with Danny. 
Today, I'm excited to be sitting down with Danny, who is the owner of Picnic, among other endeavors. So yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, let me let me begin at my origins. <laughs> <laughs> my origin story. So I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. My parents have a business or they did have a business up until last year. They retired and ended their business. So they started basically in the 70s. I think my parents met at like a rummage sale or something. So my dad had an antique store at the time and my mom was really into vintage and she was upcycling basically. So she was, you know, one of the examples of things that she's told me she made was she would get like silk tops, men's silk shirts and put pin tucks in the shoulders and, you know, sell them to women. And so basically she started selling these items in my dad's antique store and they got really popular. And so they decided to basically end the antique store, but open up a clo women's clothing store that was vintage and like upcycled vintage clothing. That's so ahead of the time. I know. So cool, right? <laughs> but really, it also, really cool. I feel like there was definitely that was happening a lot at the time in the 70s. Like there was this kind of beginning stages of like upcycling, but also just like crafting and people making things from hand by hand. So yeah, I mean, by the time I was born, it had already developed into no, no longer any vintage. So they were designing and producing at that time, probably about 75%. And then they had some smaller lines um, also within the store, but they were made domestically up until the early 2000s everything that they designed in-house was made in Canada, wow. except for knitwear, yeah. which we'll talk a little bit about knitwear later. But yeah, that, that wasn't really something that could be made domestically. Up until, like I said, last year, they had their store, but slowly over time, the whole made in Canada aspect initially was, you know, people said it was very appealing to them. But with the introduction of like Zara, H&M, those types of global brands starting to make their way into Canada, I feel like they just kind of weren't able to keep up. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we saw that across the board, but very much so within my parents' small brand. They just, you know, as much as the consumer said they loved that it was made in Canada, they just didn't understand why the price had to be so different. Right. So yeah, that's how I kind of started the love of clothing and and fashion and vintage always had a love of vintage I was always shopping at thrift stores with my mom and my aunt and my friends and stuff I applied to FIT got accepted to FIT moved to New York City when I was 18 I chose a specialization of knitwear halfway through my degree we had to choose a specialization and it was you know, somewhat out of interest. I wasn't necessarily like super passionate at the time. I just was thinking like, I know I want to <laughs> go into ready to wear. I, I'm not like an evening wear or intimate apparel designer. And it just felt like the right move to go into like to move into knitwear because I felt like having that kind of special focus definitely couldn't hurt me in my career. Mm -hmm. I really did fall in love with knitwear as I got into the program because it was just so fascinating that you're, you're not just like taking a bolt of fabric and cutting out pattern pieces. You're literally creating 
the pieces, like the, the, the silhouette of the garment at the same time as you're creating the fabric. And that was really fascinating to me that I was like, it's such a, a amazing kind of merger of being a textile designer and an apparel designer. So I just, I, I, I'll never stop being, being inspired by knitwear and the endless possibilities. So yeah, that's, that's how things began. And I graduated at, in the last recession, which is oh cool. god, I know I, I get sad sometimes. I get two in my lifetime. I know I'm like I can't believe this is going to be my second recession. Oh my god, tell Such me about it. Such a bummer. It's so wild. I know. Well, lucky us. Yes, exactly. That was crazy because that year after I graduated that summer, I went on one interview. And it was Jeez. with like a Missy label and I showed oh. my like fashion school portfolio and it was like so creative and like colorful and wacky. And they were like, wait, are you sure you want a job here? Like basically was what they were saying. And I was like, yeah, I want a job, <laughs> you know, so I didn't get that job. <laughs> But later on, I did get another job. It was an opportunity in Philly, which was crazy to me because I didn't really know anything about Philly, um, having, you know, moved from Canada. And I just love New York so much. I had this like amazing neighborhood and network in Brooklyn. And so it was really hard for me to leave, but like, I knew it was the right thing to do. It was the only thing to do because I needed sponsorship. So I otherwise would have had to move back to Canada where there were even fewer opportunities for me as a designer. Funny how we don't yeah. really think about things when we go into school. I mean, <laughs> obviously I didn't know there was going to be a recession when I started school, but I didn't well, really think about right. how hard it would be to like get a job in the U.S. after. I mean, I think I, I think it's totally based on the recession because you know, obviously I know what company you worked for in Philly. Yeah. And uh it's a we can't say the name here, but they seem to sponsor so many visas, yes. right? These days. Yes. So I do think you came in in an era where they were like, let's I mean, I know Canada's not that far away, but they were like, let's bring in people from other countries. Oh my God, so, so many glamorous. Brits. There were like so, so many, many Brits. Brits. And like in the past few years, it's like Australians. Mm, so interesting. I do think I mean it's it's terrible to come in during recession. And I have worked places that were like, we do not sponsor visas, period. Right. right. So it just depends. But yeah, like what another complicated wrinkle. I'm also realizing you're the first Canadian guest we've had. Ooh. Very exciting. What a novelty. <laughs> so international. <laughs> I re speaking of that, I feel like when I moved to the U.S., I did not realize how much of a novelty it would be that I was from Canada. Like people made <laughs> such a big deal out of it. And I was like, it just blew my mind. I was like, it's not that interesting. I don't come from that far away. It's not that different. You know? I know. It's true. The first time I went to Canada, which was actually to Vancouver, BC, Ooh, I, I was like, I was like, this isn't any different than Portland For or sure. Seattle. Cleaner, more modern. Very felt, much like cleaner. <laughs> Yeah. And like cigarettes and alcohol were really expensive, but like everybody else was like this. It was the same. Yeah. I mean, there are like nuances that I think after I moved to the U.S., like I really started to pick up on 
over time. Like now when I go back home, I feel like an element of culture shock in a weird way. Mm. That could be partially like East Coast to West Coast though too, because I feel like there's kind of in Vancouver, there's kind of this like passiveness whereas like I'm so used to this like east coast like (laughs) excuse me you know like whereas in Vancouver it's like um uh, like my husband and I always joke about it because like he gets so annoyed because people like we're just used (laughs) to people just being like hey sorry can I get by you know it's a west coast thing and even more specifically like a pacific northwest thing I think because Portland is the same way Mm. and like the traffic there is always caused by people being like no you go first Ah. no you go no you go and so you come to a four-way stop and everybody's just sitting there awkwardly oh my god yes even people will like they will not have a stop sign but they will stop and let you go first and it's like when Dustin moved there with me, mm-hmm. he was just like, I, I'm like have road rage constantly <laughs> like, because so people are so nice. And I was like, Oh, I'm just like used to it. I don't think about it. But <laughs> then we came here and everybody was driving. Like it was an apocalypse or something. Oh my God. For sure. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, a, a few weeks ago I was like at a crosswalk and I like yelled at cars because I was like walking into the crosswalk and there's like no acknowledgement of what a crosswalk is here. It's like if you see a person there, you <laughs> oh, stop. Yeah. Like, what do you think a crosswalk is for? Totally. <laughs> no, I know it's me too. I like. I feel like I walk less than I ever have in Philly because it's like there's no there's no safe space oh for a God, pedestrian. For sure. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Anyway, so anyway, back to your story. Yes. you took a job in Philadelphia. Yes. So that was like a really amazing experience and horrible at the same time. Like there's definitely the two sides to it, Mm -hmm. but it was like an incredible learning experience because I was like fresh out of school, had no like real experience. You know, you think you understand Mm -hmm. things when you're in school, you think, you know, everything, but really it's just the very, very tip of the iceberg in terms of your education, because most of what I learned was just from being on the ground and learning from people mm-hmm. around me. And, and I had the opportunity to travel overseas, which was incredible. So I hadn't even been at the company for a year yet. And my designer, like the sweater designer, she left. And so I went to Hong Kong with our creative director. Wow. Just me and her. So it was really, really cool, but also just like super overwhelming because she was responsible for all knits and sweaters. So because there was no knits designer there, her focus was kind of more on the knits. And I just like basically fit samples, design the next season stuff, like on the ground there, work directly with our vendors, which was amazing. Like, I think my relationships with my vendors could never have been so strong if it weren't for all my trips overseas. And that was really, really amazing. And, you know, I still keep in touch with some of those vendors. Yeah. So that was cool. That trip didn't involve any factory visits that first Mm -hmm. time, but I did plenty of factory visits in my years after that, which were so amazing. Um, you know, and I think we, being that it was a fast fashion company and most of my career was in fast fashion, we kind of have these assumptions of what those factories look like. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, like I never witnessed anything really that shocked me or didn't look desirable, but obviously that's very much like 
because of what I saw on its face. Like, I don't know how Mm -hmm. long these people were working in the factories. There's so many unknowns, but the working conditions from what I could see were really good. And so I was very, very relieved to see that. The only one time when we talk a little bit more about knitwear, maybe it'll the understanding will kind of like, it'll be a little bit more understandable, but in terms of how you put garments together for sweaters is by linking instead of sewing. Mm -hmm. And so that technique is like literally stitch for stitch has to line up on these little needles. It's very hard to explain to someone without any sort of visuals, but (laughs) the finer gauge the garment is, the smaller those little loops are that need to match Mm -hmm. up. So you basically Mm -hmm. have to have very, very good eyesight for a long time, like looking at something. So for me, it looked like the mostly women who were doing that job were quite young, but I don't know that that was the one thing that kind of like shocked me a little bit, but I talked about it with our vendors and, you know, they can't really say much about that. So you were worried that they were kids basically, right? Like, yeah, I mean, not, not kids, but I was just like, I, I just thought that they looked quite young. That was basically Mm -hmm. the gist of it. It sounds like such a hard job. Like it's making my head hurt thinking about having to like squint and line that up. Oh my God. I mean, I did that in school. We had linking machines and it was like a nightmare. It was not fun. So being like a sweater designer, I'm, it's tough. It's such a weird like contradiction because I'm like a purist in that I want sweaters to be a particular way. And like, if I see a cut and sewn garment, I'm like, oh, that's not a real sweater, you know, Mm -hmm. but when it comes down (laughs) to it, like, I don't know. It's just like, it's tough because like, there's the two sides of it. There is another technique though. So what's interesting is that in the world of sweaters, cut and sewing can actually be more expensive because most real sweater factories don't have the actual tools to do cut and sew. Mm -hmm. So those garments would have to be shipped to another cut and sew factory. So it ends up being more expensive, which is really interesting. But there is another like kind of a third way called cup seaming. So it's kind of somewhere in between the two. So whenever I could kind of push for cup seaming in my career, especially with finer gauge, I would definitely recommend that because the customer does not know the difference. It's like a little bit of seam allowance is basically the difference, but it still has like a chain stitch look to it. So feels like a real sweater, but yeah, that's getting really into the nuances of it. (laughs) So just for the listeners, uh, cut and sew is exactly what it sounds like. It's what you think of when you think of sewing clothes, where you lay out the fabric, you cut out the pieces and you sew them together. And in my career, I have seen this become more and more common in sweaters, which is not how sweaters are generally made. They're knitted. They're like fully Mm -hmm. fashioned, right? They're completely knitted and not sewn together, uh, which is what Danny's talking about with the like the linking Right. of the stitches. So I've seen, especially at the lower price point, especially in fast fashion, a lot more cut and sew sweaters, which are like bolts of knitted fabric cut up and sewn together. The quality's just not there. Yeah. They form holes, yes, they pull exactly. apart. It's, it's, but it's faster. And if you are doing it in the right factory, it can be so much cheaper. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it's a, com- it's a completely different skill set 
completely different factory. Yeah. And there's so many determining factors on whether a sweater should even be cut and sewn to save on price too. Like I said, like Mm -hmm. depending on whether the factory has the capabilities, but also when it comes to like you mentioned the holes, like holes would be much more likely if it was like a chunkier or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas finer gauge, you don't have as much risk. So there's just so many nuances to it Mm -hmm. for sure. Uh And I think that's a really good call out. Like the fabrics that can be used for cut and sew sweaters are pretty limited. Yes. Like you, and you kind of like, once you start to see a few of them, you can recognize them immediately that there aren't as many options out there. And you definitely are probably not going to see a chunky or textured knit in a right. cut and sew. Because it would just but, look really bad, honestly. Yeah, it would, look, it would be terrible. Yeah. And it would immediately fall apart. Yeah. Okay, so here we are. You are working in Philly. Yeah. You're working for this yes. fast fashion retailer. So what happened next? So I was there for about four and a half years, I want to say. And then I was just like, I understood that like if I wasn't, working at this particular company in Philly, there were not many other opportunities within Philly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That is true. I mean, I think changing jobs is all an integral part of like building your career and learning more and becoming better at what you do. Yes, absolutely. And that's why you see a lot of people in the fashion industry moving around a lot because it's not Mm -hmm. like unless you're in like a major hub like New York or LA there's not many opportunities outside of those two regions so Mm -hmm. if you move you know to Minneapolis to work for Target if it doesn't work out for Target for whatever reason like you're probably gonna have to move or figure something else out maybe a career change or something you know so That's definitely been a realization, I think, for a lot of people in the industry. Um, But yeah, so anyways, I had an opportunity. Someone reached out to me in New York. I had been, you know, thinking about moving to New York for a while. My then boyfriend, now husband, had some interest in it too. He was working for the same company as me, but he's a fine artist, so he was interested (laughs) in pursuing that full time. Right. So I got this job in New York and, you know, I kind of ignored all the red flags that they were showing me. And there were a lot, (laughs) but I was, you know, hearing that the salary was almost twice what I was making at my current job. And they were basically telling me everything I wanted to hear. And I'm going to say the name of the company because I am more than happy to put them on blast because I don't <laughs> okay. want anyone else to work for this company. Who even knows what's <laughs> happening to them right now? But the company was called RDG Global, which anyone out there who's not in the industry, most people in the industry probably wouldn't have ever heard of this company before. But they basically did a lot of private label for mm-hmm. you know, everything from like Burlington Coat Factory to Macy's to Forever 21. So the gamut, like across America, Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. had like a juniors line and they had a Missy line. And so, you know, my direction when I came in was basically design cute stuff. That was basically (laughs) the overarching (laughs) direction I got, which is not direction at all. Right. Um, they wanted me to continue doing what I did with my last brand. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll try that, which was very hard to do in the scope of the type of company they had 
So it was definitely a crazy experience, not having any direction, having used to work for a team that had like a concept and like all that sort of stuff. And they also had very little patience for the development process, which in sweaters is actually Uh extremely important because like I said before, you're developing the fabric. So every single thing you do to the garment that affect that's affected by the fabric changes the entire garment. So in the world of sweaters, it's really important to develop knit downs is what they're called, but basically you're creating your fabric. So the tension of like how tightly or how loosely you're knitting is very important to determine in the beginning, because every time you change that even slightly, you're basically switching out the fabric. Right. So, but there was no development time built into their calendar. So basically we would have Uh, a yarn, direct them to make the garment. And what we got didn't usually look very good because that's the nature of developing protos. mm -hmm. You've got to get through. If you don't develop your fabric from the get-go, then your first sample is very likely not going to look great. And you'll have to tweak it quite a bit to get to your second. But they wanted to see a bang on first proto that is delusional I mean it's completely delusional it's wild I mean just for like anybody listening like anything that's made with yarn so that's not just sweaters but like hats Mm, gloves scarves all of that stuff takes twice as long to develop it's just how it is and if you work in the industry you just know that and there's no way around it I mean I think that's why you see so many bad sweaters at places that move really fast. Absolutely. So what I learned really quickly also was that they didn't really need or want sweaters really as much as they thought, uh, sorry, not sweaters, designers, as much as they thought they did. (laughs) Oh, classic. This is classic to me. I do think, so I just recorded an episode yesterday about all these like like Shein and like the like oh, you know so and I, don't even get me I know I know I know but one thing I I said in the episode is the internet is filled with all these like side by side comparisons of like here's the photo of what I ordered on the site here's yeah. what I received and you know those photos are stolen from other retailers or Instagram people oh yeah I've seen my things from brands that I work at on oh god uh, me this too. Shein website and I'm like what? me too me too it's so, fully taken from the website like doesn't make any sense <laughs> one thing I could say I could, and I can see this as someone who's worked in this industry for a long time is I can tell by comparing the differences there that they didn't even try to copy a sample they tried to copy a photo so they tried yeah. to Get a photo off a website and make that garment, and that's why it looks so different. Yeah. Like people in this industry believe that you do not need designers, you don't even need to look at physical samples, that you could just copy an idea and everybody will be totally satisfied with the product. And like we as customers should not be okay with that. Like a designer, it's so important if you want a garment is integral for sure. Integral. If you want it to look good feel good, make you feel good, fit well. Like this is a highly skilled job. And I never cease to be amazed by the vendors and even some brands that I have encountered in my career who are 100% are like, we don't need a designer. We're just going to send a photo or buy a sample and send it off. 
Yeah, I mean, it just really shows that they don't understand all that goes into the job of a designer. Because it's not just sketching something on paper. There's so many elements of it. Right. That's what I was just going to say. I know. I know. Like, there's so much more. It's not just a drawing of an outfit. So at RDG, what I learned and why I say that they didn't really want designers as much as they thought they did is because they were getting by just fine before I got there because they were, their sales reps were shopping the stores, meaning, you know, Zara, H&M, Urban Outfitters, Forever 21, Macy's, all these places. They were purchasing sweaters from those stores, taking them into their offices, removing the labels, putting their own labels in. And then they had like these kind of tags attached at the hem that had a coded system that basically referenced which store it came from. Oh, this is not unusual, by the way. I've seen this a lot in my career. I had never even imagined that this was something that had been done. So in the tags that they added on the code that showed like, okay, so this sweater was from Forever 21. The reason why they did that is because when Forever 21 came to their office to shop their lines, they needed to make sure that they weren't showing a Forever (laughs) 21 sample that had been purchased from the store yesterday to them. So this has happened to me in all categories of buying that I've worked in. In the beginning, I worked in shoes. I went to a showroom and they had like a whole wall of all the things they can make. And this was totally like, you know, what they call a garmento sort of situation where it was like they were selling Mm -hmm. to Forever 21. They were selling Macy's, everyone. And there were shoes on the wall that I had developed and they were trying to basically sell them to Forever 21. And we would bust this all the time. One time they accidentally sent me samples of shoes like that I had developed and was buying and they had forever 21 labels sewn into them because they were also selling them to forever 21, even though I had created the style and years later, same situation with gloves. I went to a vendor, a glove I had developed was on the wall uh, with the tags cut out. And I was like, Hey, why is this here? This is ours. This is our property. So I did some research because I was like, what is the real legality around stealing people's ideas? Right. Cause it's so, yeah. Like, I cannot emphasize enough how widespread this is. I mean, it is happening mm-hmm. way more than you think. I mean, like Danny's story alone illustrates that like this is literally happening every day. And so <clears throat> I was like, yes. what is the deal with copywriting fashion? Like, how much can you get away with? And honestly, you can get away with a lot. Yeah. So in the US, anything that is functional or has a physical function in the real world cannot be copyrighted. So you can copyright an idea, a slogan, a piece of art because They don't have a physical functional use. But more than a century ago, the U.S. Copyright Office decided that all fashion is functional, no matter how wild or what the end use is. So Mm. from jeans to ball gowns to sweaters to gloves, even shoes, this means no apparel can be copyrighted. But there are some elements of the fashion industry that can be copyrighted, which can kind of be woven into a case or a cease and desist order. So one is jewelry because Mm. the copyright office has decreed that jewelry has no real functional purpose. It's merely ornamental. Um, And that can be extended. I was reading like if you have a really elaborate clasp on a purse that is unique to your brand, you can copyright that. Oh, wow. And if people copy that, you could sue them. 
what the outcome would be is not necessarily what you're hoping for, but it could happen. Uh, the two-dimensional aspects of clothing, though, are copyrightable. So fabric prints, that's usually mm-hmm. like if you're going to have a case at all, this this is where you're going to get it. Uh, jacquard weaves yeah. and lace patterns are also part of that. I would assume to a certain extent some knitwear would then qualify for that depending on the stitch. Yeah. Anytime there's like a, a pattern or like an artwork on it. So like a jacquard or an intarsia, those are the two like technical words for how those mm-hmm. patterns are created. Yes, they can be. Or a stripe even, they can be copyrighted. That makes sense. And I, but that said, I have been in meetings my entire career where I go into a meeting to look at sweaters and there's sweaters hanging on the wall and half of them are bought samples that have not even been designed or developed by the in-house design team. They are going to try to copy them. And that's what I'm saying. This is very widespread, goes on all the time. And, you know, why is that? I mean, because it's really, really hard and expensive to even win a case. And if you're a smaller designer, mm. you don't have the money to retain a lawyer and get an outcome. Like, it's always a huge win when you see someone like Tuesday Bassin win against Zara yeah. or get some sort of settlement, you know? We look to the law to protect people from knockoffs, but it's just not there, right? We're really talking about the difference between what's wrong legally and what's wrong ethically. So it's not illegal to copy someone's design, but it's super unethical. It's not also illegal to sleep with your friend's boyfriend, but it's super (laughs) fucked up, right? So That's a really good analogy. Right, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's like really silly for us as consumers to to be like, no, we're – you know, we're going to respect the word of the law here. And if the law says it's okay to copy right. someone's designs, then I'm going to buy it. No, it's up to us as customers to hold the brands that knock off other designers accountable from an ethical standpoint. Yeah. Because the law is not going to do anything about it. So like, we need to call them out on social media. We need to not buy their stuff. I was just going to say, just like in social media, if you know, your best friend slept with your boyfriend, you're going to put them on blast on the internet. So let's right. do the same when that happens in the industry. That's why I love you know, accounts like Diet Prada who are calling Mm -hmm. this shit out. So like, even though that small brand might not be able to take legal action, hopefully, you know, if Diet Prada writes about them or something, they're just going to reap the benefits of this horrible thing happening because people are just going to be like, I want to go out of my way to support this brand that just got fucked over by this huge design company or retailer or whatever for knocking them off. Right. Like it's only us, the consumers and the customers are going to be able to change anything or Mm -hmm. hold anyone accountable because the likelihood of a designer winning this case and winning any sort of rewards that help them down the road is so slim. It's copyright lawyers are so expensive. These big companies have, they have permanent staff counsel you know, they're mm-hmm. going to go at you hard. They don't care. I, I remember when all that stuff went down with Tuesday Bassin and Zara. Zara basically sent her a letter that was like, what? We're so big. What are you going to do about it? And I was like. It's just like a full bully, like a full on definition of a bully. Like, Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I mean, they're right. It's It sucks. It sucks. And so we need to make those decisions and we need to hold the brands accountable. And yeah. I, I guess like social media is one great, great way to do it. Some companies, as we, you and I were talking about before we recorded, some companies care about what their customers think more than others. It's kind of interesting how some are like, whatever, I'll just keep ignoring, but others build their brand based on not caring. Like that's part of their DNA. It's like, oh yeah, we don't care. 
Yeah, we'll we just are in it for the hard the hard cash, right? Yeah. And I think those brands, the only thing that they care about is the bottom line. So if you stop buying stuff from them, they are going to feel the hurt eventually and have to change their ways. And I know like there's a lot of conversation out there about like boycotting brands mm. and how that can hurt the most vulnerable garment workers, but I also say like more brands and retailers than not do not give a fuck about your social media callouts. You need yeah. to do both. You yeah. need to back it up by not buying stuff. This brings up such a good point because I feel like there's this misnomer that as a designer working for these brands, you have a voice. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm also just going to say it's the same thing as a buyer. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. It just basically like saying that like being on the inside of these brands, I feel like people on the outside think, well, you have a responsibility. You have a voice. You can say something. But the reality of being on the quote inside is so not like that. Like that's just not, it does not feel like you have a voice and you can speak up about these things and you can make a difference. It really doesn't. I mean, there is something to be said for that. Like, you know, speaking up about things, absolutely. Like if enough people are doing it, hopefully it will make a change. But at the end of the day, like you said, money talks. So it's like, if the customer is still buying it, then they're going to keep doing it. And there is this kind of mentality in the industry and design that like, if you're not willing to do it, well, there's people waiting at the door for your job so they can come in and, and do it for us, you know? So, and that, that's like kind of sentiment, like kind of extends through so much of the job of being a designer or like in the industry in general is this feeling of like, you know, you should be so lucky that you have this job and it's, it's terrible. It's like every person that I talk to in this industry is like, yeah. And then the, this person from the executive team came in and made me do this thing yep. that I thought was a really bad idea as <laughs> an experienced professional. And I mean, we've, we've all been there. I've seen myself have to give in on these things and then see it affect me adversely down the road because yep. it wasn't the right decision. And I knew it wasn't, you know, I'm getting my review and any promotions based on how my business is performing. Yeah. I've cited the, uh, straw fedora nightmare. <laughs> I mean, like I, it, it, most yeah. of the people I've worked with in my career are great people who only want to do good things. And they certainly Absolutely. do not want to copy someone else's work. But their power is pretty limited when it comes to making those kinds of decisions. And I've had – I mean, you and I talked about this when we were prepping for this episode. I've had so many times I'm sitting at my desk and like a magazine tear appears in front of me and it's like, make this. Like so many times – almost everywhere I've worked. So I I have a phrase for that, which I learned at the last job. I don't know where this phrase came from, but those were called JFDIs. Just fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my boss then would pass me that tear and say, sketch this. It's a JFDI. And I'd be like, <laughs> got it noted like there was no question around uh -huh. what that meant mm -hmm. is it came from someone so high up that it doesn't really matter what you think of it 
whether you like it, whether you think it's going to sell, whether you're okay with copying something, just fucking do it. Yeah. So, and that is like, I mean, I just, just thinking about that term, like makes me shake because it's just like, what a nightmare as a designer to, or as a merchant, you know, same difference. Well, because yeah. If you're just like a creative yeah. person who takes pride in your work, yeah. the last thing you want to do is copy someone else's work. I mean, that's yeah. terrible. For sure. And the, the crazy thing about it also is like at that brand where I learned that term, we actually had like a really intensive legal department and the design team were constantly having to take these classes about copywriting and about copying things in general. We had different like theories or analogies to kind of understand or decide for ourselves whether it was too close to the original or not. Like Mm -hmm. we had this like bus stop theory. Like if you saw the person at the bus stop, two people standing there, would you think they were the same sweater or whatever? Or it's like the blink test, you know, at a blink of an eye, does it look the same? And these were kind of like determining factors of whether it was too close to the original. <laughs> Meanwhile, and we're getting hilarious. These, yeah. <laughs> because then we're getting these JFDIs. So they're putting all this pressure on us to make these calls. Yet we get these JFDIs that we have no say over. So it's like, I, I mean, it's just such a weird, like being pulled in all these directions as a designer. It's like you, you never can write, make the right choice basically is what you're being set up for. Basically. And you know, so in my experience, when I get these tears thrown on my desk and then I have to go get it made, right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to try to change it because obviously it's like totally, Ill- I mean, possibly not illegal, but definitely unethical to copy yes. this thing. So I bring it in, the sample in, and it probably looks okay. But once again, we're talking about trying to change someone else's idea into something that That looks like it same. wasn't their idea, but your idea. Yeah, exactly. Which is like, when you try, when you say it out loud, it sounds so ridiculous. Yeah. But once again, this is literally what we're asking, being asked to do in our jobs. So you get the sample in and you show it to the people who put the photo on your desk in the first place. And they're like, mm, it's just not the same. Like what I'd really like it to be is like, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, you mean exactly like the original inspiration? And they're like, yeah. And then you're like, no, like we can't do that. And so inevitably either you go back to the drawing board and exactly copy the inspiration or you just drop it altogether because it's just there. It's never going to be successful. But once again, like this is still happening every day, everywhere. (laughs) Like yeah. I can't, I can't, I cannot emphasize that enough. And, you know, sometimes this is an accident, right? Because I do feel like, you know, we're all sort of like breathing in the same air. And so we'll all be like all at once really into, you know, tie dye or something. But right. more often than not, it is not an accident. And no. I mean, I have like, like you were saying how you've gone in to, to, you've seen a sales rep literally trying to sell stuff you made at a different shop. Yes. <laughs> the same company who's like not happy with the protos I'm bringing in yet. They're bringing things in from the brand I last worked at and putting it on the store, on the uh, wall and I, saying like, why can't uh, you design stuff like this? I'm like, you mean the thing I designed? <laughs> it's, it's such a crazy idea like if you're if you're someone like rdg global who by the way the glass door reviews are such a red flag like i i say this a lot i'm gonna say it again if you haven't heard me say this before 
before you interview for a job, read the Glassdoor reviews. Like they are doing all the class. It's all the classic tropes I've come to recognize from a toxic culture, which is really fucking brutal reviews of people having a terrible time working there. Each one followed by a five star. I can't even say anything that is wrong with this company kind of review. Like that. If you can't see through that. Then, yeah. like, you probably should go work for RGG Global. Yeah, I mean, I mean like, take five minutes and go through yeah. this because I would say, based on my experience, it, uh, you know, working for various different companies of different degrees of terribleness, if you see a couple bad reviews and then uh, some okay reviews, then it's probably it's pretty legit. It's pretty legit. Some yeah. people have a bad experience. Some people don't. If right. you see a really extreme mix of very dark reviews and extremely like this is the best place to work ever reviews, that place is super toxic. <laughs> and at some point, the boss there made everyone write a fake glowing review. And yeah. this happens everywhere that's shitty. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so back to, you know, like this idea of copying stuff when you're like, a private label retailer, which means you're making stuff for other brands and they're putting their labels in it, like your accountability is going to be a lot, lot lower, I guess I would say like from a, from like a social perspective. But when you're a retailer and you do that and you get known for doing that, which I've worked places that are known for that, suddenly nice, cool designers and brands will not sell to you anymore. And I think I was Mm. telling you when you and I, we're working on this episode plan about when I was working in shoes, we went to see this like small indie, like upscale shoe designer because the executive team had come to us and said like, listen, we want you to put these like high end shoe assortments in like 10 doors and it'll like, you know, it'll elevate our brand as a whole. Yeah. And then we can put them in the catalog too and it'll make the catalog more premium. So we're doing the rounds of all these fancy brands of shoes. And I'm like, I'm talking like, you know, three, four, five, six hundred dollars shoes, which we were a place that sold like $50 shoes. So this was a, this is a big shift. And yeah. it was tough. We would have to like persuade these people to sell to us. Like they just were like, you're an asshole. You copy stuff. You're known for copying stuff. How do I know if I don't sell you these shoes next week, you're not going to make your own version of it. And it's like, touche. <laughs> like you're right. right. And I, we went to see this one brand and the owner, like, I, I, I don't know. I think she just wanted to be mean to someone. She knew she wasn't going to sell to us, but she still set up the appointment and had us come in and immediately just lit into us about what terrible people <sighs> we were and how did we sleep at night. And there was no way she would sell to us ever because we were these monsters who copy shit. And, you know, it's not like I could step in and be like, well, it's like way more complicated than that. Right. Like we don't yeah. do this by choice. I mean, she was right to a certain extent. And so basically like if you're a retailer and you continue to copy stuff, even if your customers don't hold you accountable, which right. as you and I've talked about, it just doesn't happen as much as we would like brands are going to start to hold you accountable and punish you in these other ways, deservingly so. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so unethical. It really is. And <laughs> and like you said, I feel like within these brands where they're, you know, they're responsible for this copying, like you said, a lot of the times they don't even really perhaps know because they're buying from outside vendors. But as much as we want to say like, okay, you know, we can't take responsibility. We didn't know. 
there should be systems in place for these brands where they can make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen because, you know, 100%, like, 100% exactly. Like I feel like there, there could be entire departments within these brands that are, you know, combing the web, you know, like maybe you went to this amazing meeting, you met with these reps, they showed you this amazing necklace. And you're like, I really, really want to buy this necklace. We're going to place like a 10,000 unit buy on this. You have to send it through this, you know, new type of team that will comb the web. See, did somebody make that necklace on Etsy? Did that vendor Mm -hmm. rip that off from someone Mm -hmm. else and Mm -hmm. hold the vendors responsible? You know, I think at the last brand I worked at, they actually did have better systems in place for that sort of stuff, which is ironic because it's the same as the JFDI company. Um, <laughs> but they would make sure that when they were buying something from outside vendors, or even if it was their in-house vendors providing them with ideas, they basically had to sign something that said that this is our own idea. We didn't steal it from someone else. So that if there were legal matters later, they would, Mm -hmm. they would have to pay the fines. And that's so smart because I know which place you're talking about. And I've never seen a single article saying they copied something. So it's possible. And I was telling you before about a place I worked, we had this necklace. It was like a state with a heart. I mean, to be honest, something that's like been all over the internet for a long time. But this was the first time the buyer had seen it. She saw it at a vendor showroom hanging on the wall, starting to sound exactly like the kind of place yeah. that you work. Uh-huh. Right. And so there's tons of these. I mean, there's so many of these kinds of vendors. More more than not, you know, once again, when you see something with a label on it for a retailer or brand, that doesn't necessarily mean that they designed it at all. It just means someone made it and put that label in. So with jewelry, like the place I worked, we obviously didn't have our own jewelry design team. We didn't have a jewelry factory. We right. would go to market and buy from other vendors and then it would like have our hang tag on it, right? Mm-hmm. And they bought this necklace. It blew up the internet. It was like, you copied this from this Etsy person, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, what had happened is that the the vendor had bought it from Etsy, hung it on the wall and was like, someone's going to buy it. And, you know, we did. Right. But you can't explain, I mean, to explain that to a customer. Well, honestly, I feel like they should have because this is happening all the time. Uh, the Etsy person should have been suing that vendor because who knows who else that vendor sold it to. Yeah. And instead, it was like they were coming after the retailer. But once again, like like Danny's saying, there should be someone whose job is to just check that stuff. Yeah. Spend absolutely. the money. It's but, not that like, harsh. But, you know, like. Retailers just don't care. They're like, whatever. No, they, don't. they just don't care. They really don't. And and to be honest, like there is an element that I do understand, not saying it's right, but the way things move within these brands is so fast paced. It's like, oh my God, you yeah. can't even catch up with what is wanted of you and expected because it's just like you could be designing this line and everyone be happy with it. And then like all of a sudden we have a meeting and blah, blah, blah says this about that. And blah, blah says this about that. And all of a sudden overnight, the line is flipped. We have to place orders tomorrow. You know, they're starting to order the yarn 
like it's already knitting, you know, it's like happens so fast. So like mm-hmm. to think that there needs to be this protocol within there where someone's also checking and making sure that we're not like ripping someone off. It's kind of unfathomable with how things are going right now. Oh, for very sure. much for hope sure. that that changes. I hope that many things in the fashion industry changes, mm-hmm. but to think of that, the reality of that is kind of hard to imagine. It is. I mean, how it is right now. I mean, I've seen in the length of my career, this entire shift in like things speeding up where suddenly we have to deliver new product like every day. Tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And like (laughs) we can't like in the beginning of my career, I would be working on product that wasn't going to deliver for like six months, especially when we were talking about yarn stuff. Like if I was doing scarves and gloves, I would be working like, you know, right now it's like what? It's September. I would be working on like next summer, whatever that might be. And now it's shifted. I mean, this kind of happened gradually and now it's so crazy that like a lot of buyers right now in September are like placing orders for things that are going to deliver in November. It's wild. It's so wild. It's so wild. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because you've talked a lot about like what the pandemic has done to the industry. And like, I think that there were obviously very immediate effects because all of a sudden people either A, didn't want to buy any clothing or B, mm-hmm. they wanted to buy sweatpants. Right. So there, you know, that um, New York Times article that came out a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. about how entire world is it? Like all of a sudden we're doing amazingly well because that's what they do is they sell like clothes that are basically loungewear, like sweatpants, et cetera. And they did super, super well. But there were other brands that, you know, were selling occasion dresses and all of a sudden there's no occasion. (laughs) So like what's crazy is that because things are so fast is like starting in the next couple of months, a lot of people, a lot of brands, retailers have been able to read and react in that amount of time. So we Mm -hmm. are going to start seeing a lot of like sweatpants becoming available or house dresses, you know, things that actually have like the current affairs in mind. It's, it's true. I feel like so basically what happened is everybody canceled everything they could on order, which mm-hmm. we've talked about a lot on the show. I have a lot of problems with that, but that's what they did. And then they were kind of like, okay, well, let's just see of what we have, what works. Uh, and it was sweatpants and sweatshirts. Like the place I was working before I got laid off, we couldn't it was a rental service. We could not rent out a sweatshirt for the life of us. We were like, <laughs> we're not buying sweatshirts ever again. Suddenly that's so all anyone's renting. And so I think now every email I get from a retailer, yeah. it is all loungewear. Like they've been able to chase back into this other stuff because they were working on such a tight timeline anyway. And so now I suspect all we're going to see for the yeah. coming months is sweatpants until there's some sort of clear light at the end of the tunnel, which right. is just not there. So I think this is a really good time to yes. change your shopping behavior. It's like a reset button. It is. It is. How many sweatpants do you need? You you don't. So if exactly. you want beautiful, special things, this is your time to like buy secondhand and buy vintage mm-hmm. or make your own and like stop buying tons of new clothes because like you, there's only so many sweatpants that one person should have. And I have this incredible fear that when this is all over, we're just going to see mountains of sweatpants at the oh, thrift store. God, 
you're so right. And what's interesting is like, I feel like, like you said, when they're, when we do finally see this light at the end of the tunnel, I hope, and I think, and I've read and heard from different things that I, that things will maybe move into a period where everyone's going to be so excited that they can kind of like go outside and not wear sweatpants that like, my hope is that people are going to be like, I want to just dress the way I want to dress. I don't want to care about what other people think. Yeah. You know, I this is my opportunity. Like, again, reset button. I just want to be me, be unique. And I hope that that means that people will not see the appeal in these fast fashion companies where everything looks the same. And they'll mm-hmm. just want to to invest in like special pieces that are either vintage or made by hand from someone. Actually, I was at the beginning of the pandemic, I was, you know, watching all of these like business of fashion Zoom interviews with like Marc Jacobs, Anna Sui, et cetera. And Anna Sui said something really interesting. And she was like my idol growing up, like her and Marc Jacobs, actually, they're like the Mm -hmm. reasons why I wanted to become a fashion designer. And she was saying how when there's been this kind of recession slash social unrest in society in the past, like for example, in like the late sixties, early seventies, what emerged was a lot of like craft, like people making things with their hand and an appreciation Mm -hmm. for things that take time and are special and unique. And I'm really starting to feel that happen. And I hope that it's not just like a moment in time. I hope that it's a real kind of revolution. But obviously, like we said before, like you get into this kind of bubble and you don't really realize that you know, you're just in the bubble and you're not seeing the, the scope outside <laughs> of it is that people are still like buying clothing from fast fashion in masses and discarding it. So, you know, I'm hopeful that it's that this bubble is starting to grow. That's my hope too. But yeah, like you and I were talking about, it seems like to us, everyone's making their own stuff and buying vintage and secondhand and saying no to fast fashion, yeah. right? And then I'm like, look at... I don't know, like a Fashion Nova post and there's like 10,000 right. comments on it. And I'm like, oh, God. And they're Every not time saying hashtag comment, pay up. They're being like, I no, love that. I want no. it. <laughs> Add to cart. Yeah. And like tagging their friends and like, we need to yeah. get this. And I mean, that can go for every fast fashion yes. brand that's out there right now. Like it's so infuriating. Sometimes I like to just like creep on different brands who I know haven't paid up mm. yet and see how many people are calling them out on on social media and I'll get really excited because I'll see like a steady flow of it. And then there'll be someone who's like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with this. And I'm like, no, <laughs> stop. Put your wallet yeah, away. Exactly. Oh God. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I do think like we all need to continue to like speak up as loudly as possible. Absolutely. Yes. If every one person who gets it will spread it to another person. It's just like, you know, coronavirus, <sighs> but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> like if I I do love the idea of this like transformative period coming after this and I I said this the other day to one of my friends that if you don't feel like you have been changed by what's been going on in the world right now then you live some incredible life of privilege 100%. that I I don't even want to know you I, I I can't like I need to be surrounded by people who feel what's happening and feel how it has changed Yeah, them and are feeling and inspired by it too. Like yeah. not just seeing the negatives, but seeing the potential for 
positive change out of this. Which I think is there. Even when we talk about the recession, which you and I were both kind of in the early parts of our careers mm-hmm. then, when I think about the recession, it kind of didn't affect me because I was so low level in my career that no one was going to lay me off because they were practically getting my work right, for free. True. Ironically, I will just say this. When the recession hit, I was like, I'm going to lose my job. Like no one's going to buy all these teenager clothes, right? So I'm going to pay off my student loans. And then when I get laid off, I won't have any debt. And I'm going to go live in Mexico City and write a book. And I'm never going to work in fashion again. And so this was like, what, 2008? And so I ate ramen and paid off my student loans. And I never got laid off. Well, that's amazing. And I continue to, (laughs) I know, I continue to work. But now, I remember my mom telling me, you're not getting laid off. Your work is practically free. And I was like, no, don't say that. And I think back, like, what if I had gotten laid off? What would my life be now? Like, I'd be on this totally different journey. So So, I know. And I'm like, so really, like, more than 10 years ago, I already was like, the fashion industry is bullshit. But I still stuck it out and kept doing it. We all do because honestly, because of this kind of underlying feeling, like we, I mentioned earlier that like someone else will do it if you don't. So like by leaving, if you, even if you had left at your own accord, nothing's going to change. Like you're not changing anything by leaving. You're not like having this profound impact by being like, I'm out of here. Mic drop done with fast fashion. It's like, cool. It's going on without you. Totally. So like my best example of that is I worked for a startup for several years and I worked really, really hard. I built this really huge private label business for them and it was really stressful and I didn't have health insurance and it was a small team and the environment was super toxic and it wasn't in line at all with the external facing culture, like what customers were seeing. And over time, that sort of chipped away at me. Like I would go to trade shows and people would be like, oh my God, I'm so obsessed with your brand. You're so lucky to work there <laughs> and stuff like that. And I would have to be like, yeah, I'm so lucky. Wow. But I mean, that I, was even my reaction when you told me about this brand. I know. I know. And it was meanwhile, like I was like getting a stomach ulcer because oh. it was so stressful and the CEO was so abusive and there was just so much other like fucked up shit going on there all the time. And there was this part of me that thought like when I left that it would just get better somehow that maybe me leaving would change things. But you know what? They just brought in someone else who was exactly. way more of an asshole than me and it got worse. Yeah. And I hear I hear stories from people who've worked there since then and I feel I feel I, I don't know like kind of guilty almost that like I could have stayed and tried to change it. I, it was never going to change. But you but, know that that's not true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it goes back to illustrate what you're saying is like you leave this dumb industry and someone else is going to step right in and do your job and nothing is going to change. Yeah. So I do think this, it's like the world is forcing everybody to make changes right now. And I do you believe that this is a time when we can upset the status quo and do things better and Get more people in on it. You know, stop buying garbage clothes that we wear one time. Hey, it's Amanda again. I can't wait for our next episode with Danny. Talking to her was so much fun. I'm excited to have two more episodes of Danny to edit. I was going to share a Dear Amanda letter today, but then I realized that most of the messages I received all had 
basically the same question, and it relates to hashtag pay up, which is something we've been talking about a lot here on the pod, but it's kind of also all over social media right now. So the question is, how can retailers legally cancel orders on factories and vendors just because of COVID? Like, why aren't they being sued for breach of contract or just being jerks, right? So I'm going to answer that question right now. And rather than reading one of the letters, I'm just addressing all of you. And I'm also saying, hey, thank you so much for reaching out and asking me about it. (laughs) Let's get into it. Okay, so most retailers, I mean really anyone who is bigger than a single boutique, will generally ask vendors to sign a vendor manual or vendor agreement before they issue their first order with that vendor or factory, whatever you want to call it. And a vendor manual contains a lot of information. I mean, it's depending on the retailer, it can be super duper granular. So like how orders should be packaged, how the boxes should be labeled, the kinds and sizes of boxes that are used, how or if they should have price tickets applied, if if brands own hang tags are allowed, you know, how the orders should be shipped, when the orders should be shipped, what happens if an order is late or too many units short or over, that kind of thing. I mean, it literally is a handbook of like how the vendor must fulfill the orders. And it can, like I said, be super detailed. There are even weight limits per box. For bigger retailers, it can be hundreds of pages long. And it's kind of being continuously updated to adapt to changes within their own business practices. For smaller retailers, it might just be a few pages or even like I've worked places where the vendor agreement was just one page that was tacked onto the end of each purchase order. As a reminder, I don't know if I've talked about this before, so it might not even be a reminder, but a purchase order, what we call in the industry a PO, is an order that's sent to the vendor for, you know, what the buyer's ordering. (laughs) It's an order, right? So if a vendor signs the manual, which is kind of non-negotiable, basically they have to before they're going to receive any POs, they have to agree to everything in the manual. Now, some big brands like Levi's or Nike, like brands that might be bigger than the actual retailer or just as big because all of this vendor-retailer relationship is based on power. The bigger guy is always going to have the upper hand here. So these bigger brands will push back and they'll sort of cross out the things they don't agree to. And that would happen a lot with these larger brands. And we would just generally talk to our operations team to confirm these exceptions and then move on with the order. Because if you're not bigger than Levi's, how are you going to argue with them? And you want those Levi's because your customer wants them, right? But when I worked at a much smaller startup, I mean, I could barely get anyone to sign the full vendor manual because just about every brand was bigger than us. So these vendor manuals also include a schedule of chargebacks, and chargebacks are the sort of fines that vendors receive for not adhering to the manual. And that can mean like, hey, you shipped without labeling the box correctly. Okay, well, that's going to cost you $150. So we are going to deduct $150 from the invoice you're going to send us for that order. Did you forget to apply the price tickets? Well, that could be $500 or more that we're going to charge you back. Did you ship 100 extra units? I mean, that's another chargeback and so on. Generally, the buyer's not making that decision. The warehouse is going to make that decision and they're going to send that to accounts payable and accounts payable is going to deduct that from the payment. 
that can be really hard if you're a small brand and maybe you were only shipping a thousand dollars worth of stuff to the retailer in the first place and now you're getting a chargeback for one hundred dollars or five hundred dollars that can be really devastating but once again this is all about that sort of power play like who's bigger who gets to call the shots now as a buyer if a vendor reached out to me it was like listen this is really unfair or i i don't have the spare cash to lose $150 for a chargeback, I would generally jump in and be like, hey, let's just call this a warning. Let's make sure this never happens again. Please don't charge them back. But once again, it's relationships here. These relationships are super important. Another thing the vendor manuals include is a lot of legal language. And this can kind of depend on the retailer. Some might say, hey, if we find out that you sold us a knockoff, you will be legally responsible from the lawsuit from that affected designer. Or if someone is injured by the stuff you sold us, you'll be liable. You know, those kinds of things. Most importantly, a majority of these vendor manuals, like basically if anyone there is doing their job right, they're going to include legal language around cancellations. In most of these agreements, a buyer can cancel the order if it's even one day late. This due date for the order is called the cancel date because, well, the order can be canceled if it doesn't arrive by then. And other companies say the cancel date is the last day the order can be shipped or it will be canceled. Basically, there's a lot of rules around timely delivery that can lead to cancellation. Now, buyers rarely cancel because something is late. Usually, we're going to negotiate a discount, about 1% to 2% per day that it's late. And that kind of depends on the vendor and the buyer or Maybe we will reduce the size of the order. Like maybe instead of the 1,000 units on the order, we'll only accept 800. A lot of negotiations happen here because this relationship is really important. And if you're a decent buyer, then you want to preserve this relationship by not totally fucking over the vendor. But a lot of orders are running late all the time. Like I would say at least half, maybe even more, depending on a lot of different external factors. So you want there to be some repercussions so this vendor doesn't ship every single order late from now on. I mean, because a lot of people depend on this order arriving on time. You know, store merchandising plans, sales events, and marketing launches depend on the product arriving when it was supposed to. A late PO can affect a lot of different people and just general business. To be honest, I've had vendors who were always late always sort of exploited my kindness and I eventually had to drop the hammer on them by canceling an order but once again very very rare so another part of this legal language is the force majeure clause and you might have seen this mentioned with hashtag pay up but do you know what it means well here's a pretty straightforward definition Force majeure is usually taken to mean the occurrence of an event outside the control of two parties that prevents one or both sides from fulfilling the contract. It is a provision often found in commercial contracts, so not just retailers buying from vendors. Like you can find this in a contract for a wedding, you know, or any sort of other events like buying tickets for a show, basically any agreement between two businesses. War, strike, and riot are often listed in a force majeure clause, and their meanings are really clear. 
The force majeure clause can also include natural disasters. And that's kind of on both sides of it. So like if there is a crazy typhoon and all the Southeast Asian vendors can't ship on time, they might want to cancel the order because they can't fulfill their end of the contract. Conversely, if a company's headquarters are in California and there's a crazy earthquake, they might want to cancel their order. So we're starting to look at things that are sort of outside of the control of the retailer and the vendor or in the case of any other commercial contract, just the people on both sides of it. So I would suspect the next version of everyone's vendor manual will have pandemic added to the list. This is something none of us had really thought of before. This force majeure clause allows retailers to legally cancel orders on factories and vendors due to COVID. This kind of language also allowed places like Ross to inform their vendors that they would now be paying the vendors in three months instead of one. Does that mean it's okay? Not necessarily. Once again, canceling on a vendor is normally pretty rare unless you work for a pretty unethical company. These things happen. When you cancel on a vendor, the factory owners don't get paid, the factory workers don't get paid, the fabric mill doesn't get paid, the fabric mill workers don't get paid, and so on. None of these workers have savings to fall back on. So people go hungry. They get sick and, and they can't afford to see a doctor. You know, more than three quarters of overseas garment workers are women. Their jobs, while still keeping them below the poverty level, actually give them a certain level of agency that they wouldn't have otherwise. Without those wages, they are incredibly vulnerable to physical and sexual abuse, like even more than usual. So this is a full-on humanitarian issue. So once again, much like knockoffs that we were talking about earlier in the episode, the law doesn't really protect the ethical right thing. It's merely the legal right thing. So there's a big difference between the law and ethics when we talk about force majeure and COVID cancellations. Some retailers have given into public pressure and they've paid their factories. And this includes Gap, H&M, Zara, and Levi's. And by the way, Zara had originally canceled more than $100 million worth of orders. So that is a big win. But many other retailers haven't paid yet. And I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but it's looking less and less likely that they will. Meanwhile, many of them have posted a profit for the second quarter of this year, so that's May through July, when all of these orders were canceled, and they're even paying dividends to shareholders. You can see the full list at remake.world, and I'll share the link with you in the show notes. I mean, it is so important that we continue to put pressure on these retailers to hashtag pay up. It's ridiculous that we have to pressure these corporations to do the right thing. But I think that it says something about the fashion industry as a whole. If we don't monitor them closely, they will do whatever they want. Ethics are not a concern to them unless they risk losing our money. Profits over people. I Fuck, I know that's dark, but that's the current policy of the fashion industry. Long term, these brands need to die. They need to be replaced by people who are doing things the right way. People who recognize that all of the humans making the clothing they sell are just that, humans, with needs and wants, with just as much of a right to happiness, health, and security as the executives back in the corporate office. And that's never going to happen without us. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Every purchase we make is political. 
and our money is as powerful as our vote. Let's continue to vote for a better future. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. All of your feedback and support keeps me going in an otherwise pretty weird time. So thank you for leaving positive reviews and sharing our content on Instagram. If you like what you're hearing and you haven't done it yet, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I don't know, you might even consider subscribing, so, you know, you'll never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. My current post aesthetic is primarily very Laura Ashley and hashtag Prairie Core, but who knows what I'll be into next week. Do you have questions? Need advice? Want to give me some feedback? Or, I mean, if you have an ep- idea for an episode, I would love to hear it. Please reach out via email at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com. I mean, I love hearing from all of you. It's the best thing ever. You can also just DM me on Instagram. That's pretty cool, too. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our awesome theme music and frequent audio support. Bye. Bye.